Good morning, all. You want to turn to Luke chapter 9? Praise God. Luke chapter 9. You should have notes on your seat. Is that me? <laughs> Many people join us for the first time, so I'll just recap a little bit about what we've been doing. <laughs> as soon as we can stop humming. Let's recap a, li a little bit on what we've been doing. We began a series um, about two months ago called Ready, Steady, Go. And it's a series really for churches, for believers, to help church plants, new churches to begin, and also to help older churches. You know, many, many churches grow three, four, five hundred, and then sink back down again because of silly little mistakes. Simple, you know, basic mistakes, as is so common. And the series is called Ready, Steady, Go because all churches at all times need to be ready in prayer, need to be steady in discipleship, and need to be going in evangelism. And normally, whether it's a church or an individual life, for one of those three reasons, people tend to lose their way, tend to fall apart. And that's really what this, this particular series is about, is to help us find our way. We're in the middle bit this steady bit, and we're looking at discipleship. Um, and in, the, in the first phase of this, we looked at how to be a disciple of Christ, what that means. Can you remember what that means? <laughs> no human being can make you a disciple of Christ. It's not possible, because they're not Christ. That's something that you personally, it's your relationship with Him. Very important. Every Christian must first become intimate with Christ, or they'll never be a disciple. Look, if they don't obey you, uh, him, they'll never obey you. So you can't have a disciple of yours who you can tell is not actually following Christ. So we looked at that for one week. The second week was uh, the importance of being the disciple of another, how a human being is also involved in our lives, and there's no getting away from that. That's the structure God has given us. A person is involved in your development. No man is an island in that regard. And we're beginning, it's a big task. And as a church, we're going to look next year at, at beginning the process of that. We launched last week a 2020 vision, which is literally that, a 10-year plan up between 2010 and 2020 to implement a, a proper discipleship structure because it will take that type of time period to do it properly. Okay? One, today, we're looking at the third point. And that's you personally being a discipler. Remember the last, you know, cry from the heart of Jesus. Go and make disciples. So I know, and you can know, that the last thing Jesus said as he ascended into heaven is probably the most important thing on his mind as he returns. So when I see him, when I die and I appear before Jesus, he's probably going to say, now, let's deal with that last task I gave you, making disciples. Did you make that your priority? And this is the flaw, not just of individual believers, but of many Christians around the world. And we're, as I say, we aim to correct that. So today's topic is being a discipler. And uh, if you want a title, it would be essential perspectives. There are certain ways we need to see people in order to be a good discipler. And I guess the first question that arises is, you know, when, when you're going to disciple someone, when you're going to lead them to Christ, show them Christ, one of the first questions that arises in my mind is, what is Jesus like? 
What's the real Jesus like? Because if I'm pointing them to him, if I'm steering them and, and, and changing, pointing out ways in them that are not Christ-like, I had better have gotten this picture right of Jesus. And it's not a simple question, you know. Have you any idea the amount of arguments and problems in churches over this question? What Jesus is like? You get someone, Pastor Jeff's a good example. Many of you will know Pastor Jeff. He's a street preacher here in this church in, in the States at the moment. He's really a prophet, actually. Pastor Jeff will go down onto the street and stand up on the ladder and herald the gospel loud and clear. Many Christians complain about that. In fact, we had more complaints about Pastor Jeff than anybody else. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Good believers, born-again Christians, would come to me time after time and saying, Stop him! Why? Because that's not Christ-like. Isn't it? What's your picture of Christ then? And normally when someone complains about street preaching, a very good place to a very good question to ask them is, tell me, what evangelism to you do you do? I can tell you what the answer is. <laughs> None. So your perception of evangelism then is 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 severely flawed. And your perception of Jesus is very lopsided. And such people normally, you know, hide in doorways and would never even give out a tract. And if they're trying to witness to someone in work, they don't speak, you know. They think they're going to read your mind. Well, they won't. You need to proclaim the gospel, you see. Jesus Christ is prophet, so he will proclaim the truth. And he's also priest. So come here. I understand that you may have a problem with the prophetic element. I understand that. But you need to grow in your perception of who Jesus is. Are you with me? Some people get a very lopsided, one-sided view of Jesus. Jesus is prophet. That means he will proclaim, and boldly, and in a way that will bring great conviction. And some people don't like that. As well as prophet, he's also priest. He's the one who will comfort, the one who will care for you. That's fine. And he's king, of course, ruler. So it's not that simple to say we're going to you know, create these disciples of Christ. We need to begin with ourselves and find out just what is my perception of Jesus, really. Because if I'm going to knock the edges off people and help them, I better get this right. You know, in London, there's the, the weights and measures department. And what they have in there is they have a vacuum, a series, actually, of vacuums. And in one vacuum, there will be a perfect meter stick. In another vacuum, there'll be a perfect kilogram. In another one, a perfect ounce. Because as soon as that item hits the air, it's not perfect anymore. And so it is with the church, you see. As soon as we're in this world, we're not, a, of course, a, 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 perfect answer, a, a perfect representation of Christ. And anyway, no one individual could be that. It's totally unrealistic to ask, for example, Pastor Jeff to be a complete picture of Jesus. That's why you've got all these different men. Because each of them give you a perspective, a slant, a bit like a diamond. Each of them give you another perspective on our awesome God. But to demand all of that of one person is crazy. You're never going to find it. It's not going to happen. Now, as I say, there's vacuums in London where the perfect kilogram is, the perfect meter is. And they hold them so they can refer back to them. 
And when it comes to your picture of Christ, this is your vacuum. It's the Scriptures. Held in time by God. Preserved miraculously. They call it the anvil that has worn out many hammers. Because over the generations, this has been attacked countless times, but with no effect. You've still got it. It's still there. And this really is, this is the place where we should draw our image of Jesus Christ. Before we start discipling others, before you start changing or leading others to be conformed into His image, we need to go back to the book, right? Back to the Bible and sharpen up our focus on what Jesus Christ is really like. I want to give you an example from, in fact, turn to Luke's gospel. Let, let me show you this before I do. Luke's gospel, chapter 9, and verse 55. I'll read from verse 51, actually. Luke's gospel, chapter 9, and verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers to go on ahead. <coughs> Excuse me. Who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. When the disciples, um, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And look at what he said. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. You don't know what Jesus is like. How can you say such a thing? How can you want to call down fire on some people that have gone wrong? Where's your heart? You don't know what I'm like. You see? And when it comes, I mean, it's a very interesting line. You do, know, you do not know spirit, you are off. Listen to this story. It's a true story. As I say, I worked for an organization that trained street preachers for years. And we used to meet together, about 30 or 40 of us every year. And this one man was an alcoholic. He was a very famous guy in his town, which I won't mention. Everybody knew him. Alcoholic, sleeping around the street, drunk all the time. One day he comes along when the open air meeting is going on, and guess what? He gets saved. Gloriously, wonderfully saved. And he trains with the team. He, that's his first thing he, he met was those guys, so he trained with them, and he ended up going back out with them. Now the man who was drunk... Now the alcoholic who everyone knew was in the city proclaiming the gospel. And that was, it's not a big place, that was like the talk of that particular town. And six, seven months go by, and he went back on the alcohol. He turned away, they went to go get him, and he's drunk all the time, and he ended up back in the doorway. And one day, they go out to find him, and he's dead. And actually, the autopsy said there was no known cause of death. And I remember the year after that happened, being with about 40 street preachers, and this topic came up. What happened, this man? Why did he die? And it was very interesting to see the perceptions of God. But you know, the, the word alone, if you use this alone to try and build people, you, you can destroy them. You can batter them to death. You know that? Do you know that? <laughs> it's dangerous. The word without the spirit. You do not know what spirit you are of. 
The word without the Spirit is a dangerous thing. And we were sitting around and I noticed how when the discussion about why the man had died came up, it was very interesting to see the real truth of how people in their heart of hearts saw their God. One group of men in that room said, Ah, he started to drink again. So God, no! Struck dead. Found dead in a doorway. You know what that is? <laughs> you do not know what spirit you are. Word. Lopsided. All word. There was another group of men in that room who said, No, 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 no. That's not what happened at all. The angels came from heaven and, and picked him up and took him up to heaven to be with God. And there was this total sway in the room. One all word, one all spirit. I remember how, how lonely it was because I felt neither of those parties were actually right. Do you know when someone is in a wheelchair, everybody's got pity for them, you know that? Oh. But when someone has drink and they're an alcoholic, people struggle to see the same problem. Do you know an invalid can't walk? Do you know that an alcoholic can't put the glass down? Do you know that? Do you know a heroin addict? He doesn't want the needle in his arm. He wants it out of his arm more than you do. Yet we feel we can judge one and not the other. Not seeing that it's a disability. A disability that they're torturing that person. So quick to judge. And I remember sharing with those guys. The man was disabled. He was an alcoholic. And God gloriously saved him. Now are you telling me that the same God whose son died on a cross for him, the same God, because he couldn't quite walk, damned him? I don't think so. I think God looked at that man and saw the mess he was making of his life and his witness and said, you know what? Come here. 1 John calls it a sin unto death. I mean, you may not agree. That's absolutely fine. There's many perspectives on these things. But I believe God took that man home early pulled him out of earth before he made even more of a mess, right? You see, Jesus says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. You don't know what I'm like. I didn't come to destroy people. I came to save people. Amen? Listen, listen. If there is any chance, any sliver of hope that your mom, your dad can get to heaven, they'll be there. If there's a minuscule, little, tiny little chance that the split second before they die, even after a life of reckless sinning, a, a minuscule second before they die, if, if they just turn, they'll be in heaven forever, standing right beside you. Because God is a good God. He didn't come. I didn't come here to send people to hell. That's not my purpose. I came to save them. That's the spirit he, he's in. Right? And that's the spirit we must be off. It's just important. What are we talking about today? Essential perspectives of being a good discipler. And Jesus criticized the Pharisees for turning their converts into followers of Satan. Worse than, you know, that. Remember what he said to them. He criticized them for that. And I just want to briefly run through some very important perspectives for us to take on the attitude of Christ. The first one is in Matthew 11. You don't have to turn to it. You'll know it off by heart. Matthew 11 and verse 19 says this. Jesus was a friend of sinners. 
And you know what that means? That means he's your friend. That means he, you can call him your friend. I thank God for that. And you could say, well, the context there is tax collectors and everything else. Amen, that's fine. But remember the Apostle Paul said that he was the chief of sinners and so was able to call Christ his friend, if you like. This is talking about me. This is talking about you. And it tells me something about the nature of Jesus, what it was like to be near him. Religious people fled away from Jesus Christ, but the sinners flocked to him. And do you know why? Because in Jesus and around Jesus, there was three students. Every disciple should have them. Faith, hope, and love. And when that lost person, do you know what? Average lost guy wakes up, and do you know where he's going? Hell. Hell, Romans chapter 1. They all know that there's a God. They just refuse to recognize it. They've got, they're hopeless. Hopeless. They feel there is no hope. But somehow exuding from Jesus Christ was faith in his goodness. Faith that there was hope for me. Somehow exuding from, his, from him was an empowering love. And that's what we must have. I don't think there's anything on earth more empowering than to be loved. Right? When love is coming at you, it empowers you, it equips you, enables you to be who you should be. That's who Jesus was. That's the real Jesus. And hope, faith, hope, and love. And if we get this right, if we get the spirit right, the spirit in which we deal with people, those three things should be preeminent in our lives too. Amen? So first, Jesus was a friend of sinners. And secondly, in fact, let's look at the second one. It's in John's gospel. Oh, sorry, it's not. Uh, we won't turn to it. But in, in, in John's gospel, he said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. You know, the word condemnation is a builder's term. It's borrowed from building, an architectural term. And it means when a building is condemned, it means that that building is not fit for habitation. What does it mean when some person is condemned? It means that they are not fit for the habitation of God. That's what it means. A terrible thing to be said or felt by anyone. And Jesus says this, I did not come into the world to condemn, but to save. And that shows us his motivation. It shows us the driving you know, force behind him. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 12. It's a great, great, great scripture. John's Gospel, chapter 12. And I'll read from verse 47. John 12, 47. As for the person who hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world. See that? <laughs> I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. What, do you know what I want you to see in that, guys? The heart of Christ. Do you know in one sense, listen, listen to me, Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. He doesn't condemn. I know in Romans it says there is now no condemnation for those who are saved. Amen? But you know what? In one sense, it's not even just the saved. In one sense, Jesus is not going to condemn anyone ever. It's the word that will. You see what he's saying? 
on the last day, judgment seat, there is something that will judge. There is something that will condemn. And it's this, the very word. A bit like if you can imagine a judge. And this judge is a lawmaker. And he sets the laws in his city or whatever. And some of them have the penalty of death. And one day that judge's son breaks the law. And in he comes before his father. And the father sees his own son. You know what the father would say to that son? Son, there's nothing in me that condemns you. I love you. But I'm not above the law. And this law will judge you. You see the heart of Jesus? He's not a condemner. He's a saver. He came to save people. But we can get this so twisted, so wrong. In the book of Isaiah, it calls judgment God's unusual act. Something, I believe the word there is like something that's foreign to him. Something that's almost alien to him. Something that has to happen, yes. But in his nature, God is an embracer of people. And in our evangelism, by the way, and we'll start looking at that next week, in our evangelism, this is the nature that drew sinners to Christ. Faith in them. That guy believes in me. Hope that they could be saved. And love for them. They knew they were loved by him. That's the spirit that we should be off. Amen? That's the spirit that we should be off. And raise others up in that. But we get this, I believe, so distorted. There are some things that God is. And there are some things that God has. God is love. God is holy. And yes, God has judgment within his, within his word. And it's that word that will judge us. And you begin to pick up the nature of Christ. When he saw the disciples, obviously being condemning, he stopped that. When he sees his own followers wanting to call down fire and destroy people, he says, stop it. You don't know what spirit you are of. They wanted to be like Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. Well, the Old Testament prophet days are long gone. That was a unique set of people. They were called the Nabi. The New Testament prophet, as I've shared with many of you before, is of a different spirit. Right? Fivefold structure. The New Testament prophet, do you know what his commission is? Build, it's in Corinthians. To build up, edify, and encourage. That's the New Testament prophet. But if you misread your Bible, and you read your Ezekiel, or you read your Jeremiah, like they were doing, obviously, and you try to operate in this new covenant, you're going to find yourself in the wrong spirit. You're going to find yourself condemning people instead of being out to save, just like Jesus shows us. So first, he was a friend of sinners. And I ask myself, how do sinners feel around me? How does a sinner feel around you? Do they feel condemned? Because they shouldn't. They should feel hope and empowering love like a life ring. You should be that life ring to them. He was a friend of sinners. He did not come to condemn. And coming out of him was that saving grace. And people picked it up. So all his ministry time there, he's surrounded by sinners. Praise God. Thirdly, he was full of grace and truth. And this is where the balance comes in. We've always got to keep a balance. If all you have is truth, then your life will be unpalatable to the lost. They won't be able to receive from you. But if all you have is grace, your life will be totally unprofitable. 
So we need to be just like Christ. We need to be full of grace and truth. And that's hard. It's easy to be full of law. It's easy to point the finger. And in some ways, it's easy just to give everybody grace. Do you know the hard bit? To balance your life. Balance your life. And when guys, you know, especially come out of Bible college, they tend to come out of Bible college one way or the other way. And it can take 5, 10, 15, 20 years before experience painfully teaches you. I need to stay balanced just like he was balanced. Fourthly, and this is my main point this morning, if I'm going to be a, a friend of sinners, that's something that affects me. If I'm not going to condemn, that's something and an attitude that I have to perfect. And if I'm going to be balanced in grace and truth, that still concerns me. But what about this disciple of mine? What is my approach to him? As I say, this is the heart of what I want you to get today. The Bible puts it like this. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer labors in complete vain. That's not just talking about the church, guys. That's talking about your disciples. It's talking about your children, because they're your disciples. If you've got children, you're raising them. If you've got a wife, it's your responsibility to raise her. If you've got a cell group, it's your responsibility to raise that up. Your friends, your work colleagues, and on and on it goes. But whatever I'm putting my effort into, I could daily remind myself, unless the Lord builds my child, all my labor will be in vain. And as a dad, as a mom, as a cell leader, as a husband, my chief responsibility, listen carefully, look at me, you can save yourself a lot of grief and a lot of wasted years if you get this point. My job is to find God's will for Jeanette. My job is to seek his will for her and then to help her be everything unless the Lord builds her life. All my good ideas will be in vain. So whether it's my wife or whether it's my children, do you know what? Your kids won't dress like you, I hope. They'd be a bit odd if they did, wouldn't they? No, no offense, meant. Your kids do not listen really to the same music you do. Right? That's perfectly normal. They, in some ways, they could have differing values as the generations go by. That's fine. I'm entitled to value things in my life, aren't I? I don't have to have the same values as you, do I? And so the role, unless the Lord builds the house, one of the greatest flaws about discipling is this. We try to make everybody a copy of ourselves. We set out with the wrong spirit. We set out with the wrong plan. I had an architect in our church actually in Ireland. I remember he was telling me the difference between a good builder and a bad builder is a good builder builds you what you ask for. A bad builder puts his own stamp on it, tries to conform it all to what he actually wants. I remember we were refurbishing a house once and we had a bad builder. I brought him in, I showed him what I want and he was saying, you don't want that. You don't want, no, no, this is what you, hang on, whose house is it? Right? Bad builder. Same with your son. Same with your daughter. Dad, I don't want to be a doctor. Yes, you're going to be a doctor. Do you know, there was about 30 people in my primary school class, 30 guys, and they did this test one day, this music test, and they played all these notes, and you had to tick boxes when the note was not right, you know? Dee, 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 dee. Boom, 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 boom. And I sat there, they took all the marks up, and two people who had an ear for music 
they got the right for a free scholarship to learn whatever instrument they wanted. I was one of the two. I was pleased. Let her home. Your son has got a natural ear for music. He's got a free scholarship to learn whatever he chooses. So I brought the letter home to my mum. I'm number nine, remember? <laughs> so she's got eight kids before me that she's raised. I bring the letter home. Experience. She reads the letter. Do you want to do it? Do you want to do this? And I'm saying, not a chance. Just because I can enjoy music, it doesn't mean I have to have some piano teacher wrapping me on the knuckles with a ruler for the next 10 years. Give us a break. I don't want to do it. Right? And my mum said, sure. I'm absolutely positive. Fine. Put it down. Now, to me, that's wise parenting. Right? You can say, oh, but you missed an opportunity. Look, leave me alone. I can enjoy music. It wasn't my destiny, right? But you can impose your will. You're going to be just what in my dream, my plan. Whose plan? Whose child is it anyway? God's child. Read Job. Read the book of Job where he says, it's not yours anyway. That son is mine and will be mine forever. Just in your hands for a temporary moment, I've trusted you to build them after the design that I give you. And you didn't even seek me. You didn't even ask me what the plan was. Instead, you concocted your own and then you complain all day because they're not what you thought. But if you had paused for one moment and sought me, I would have told you what the plan was. And goodness knows there's enough people get this completely wrong. Do you know I had an excellent relationship with my parents? Simply because in some ways they let me be who I was to be. But we can be so quick to judge. We judge on externals. We judge our children. We judge the youth because of the music or the way they dress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do though. God set me up a couple of times in my life just to show me how far off the beaten track I was going. I was in Phoenix, Arizona. This guy picked me up at the airport. He was going to drive us around that week. This guy picks us up and I was impressed with him from the first moment I met him. He was a, a bit like Elia. He was a man with an early mark of God on his life. A man obviously set apart from a young age. They exist. They're in your Bible. And I was impressed with him. I thought, man, this guy is godly, godly, godly. You could feel the anointing. I didn't say anything. And day after day, he would come and collect me and we would do stuff in the church there. And one day, somebody came along and I just happened to mention this guy. And I said, man, that's a godly fellow. And I said, I know. He's oozing with the Holy Ghost, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And this night, we're sitting. I'm about where you are, Illumide. I was just sitting there in the front row of the church of 20,000 people. And the music starts. And guess who comes out as a rapper? He does. He does. And they've got all these ex-gang members. And they're doing hip-hop. Oh, Lord. And they're bouncing around the stage. And I thought, Lord. And it could... It co that doesn't fit. I don't like that kind of music. But I must be wrong. You know, Illumide, I'm going to buy you a t-shirt. And on the front, I'm going to have... If the music's too loud, you're too old. <laughs> Amen. As I sat there, I had a decision to make. As I looked at that guy, what am I going to do? Am I going to judge him because I don't like his music? Crazy. Am I going to judge him because of some hip-hop thing? I really am getting old, aren't I? 
I need to stop. And I felt, I felt sort of tricked by God in the best possible sense. I thought he set me up. Set me up to show me how superficial and judgmental I had become. How old? How old I was getting. You going to wear that? You going to have your hair like that? Oh, goodness me. Just walk a few paces ahead, you know. How superficial my judgments can be. When someone... Listen, I got a call to go to Poland. They wanted us to go to Poland. I was supposed to be teaching on street preaching in churches. I get there and there's an emergency. There's been a punk rock concert. And the punk rock band got saved in the States. All born again. It's like a move of God, a miracle. And they come to Poland and they hold this massive concert. And they give an altar call. 70 people respond or whatever at the altar call. And they set up this youth camp in the middle of a forest with this big tents and everything. I land in in the Baptist Union in Poland and they say, change of plan. Now you're going to a punk rock concert. I thought, oh Lord, religious, legalistic me, going to a punk rock? No, sir. They said, we need you to go. You know, there was dire they were. We need help. And so I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And we got there. It was very well organized and fair play to that band. They did a great job. Man, there was enough metal there. You would have made a fortune on scrap. Oh, all the colors of the rainbow. There was Mohicans in those days. Hello, brother. And you're walking around looking at these guys and they set up this, this great tent. And we go in there on the first night. Ah, man, talk about it. Odd man out. You're standing there and the band are all colors. And, you know, I'm standing there. And then the worship starts. Headbanging. Headbanging. And I remember the song to this day. I want, and they all sit still. I want to praise the Lord. And they bopped their head when it came to the praise the Lord bit. And I had to stand there to praise the Lord. Uh, so what I did was this. This is what I did. I went to my tent. I got in my tent. And I said, God, it's not godly. It's not godly, Lord. I can't be part of that. And I had a word, a very quick, swift word from the Lord. Very simple. And God said to me this. If I have accepted them, will you condemn them? Well, I got up, went back in the tent. I want to praise the Lord. <laughs> so quick to judge the externals. So quick, right? Definitely religious. Definitely getting a bit old. Losing my way. And not letting people be or the generation be what it needs to be. Your children need to express themselves. And you need to get happy about it. I mean that. You need to get happy about it. In fact, that church I mentioned in Phoenix, it's one of the... Tommy Burnett is known as America's favorite pastor. And there's a lot of them. America's favorite pastor. And I, I had the honor, the great, great honor of having a couple of meals with him and being there because of connections there. But I learned so much from him. He's, when I met him there five years ago, he would have been about 67 or 68. He's the one telling the rappers he wants them on the stage. He's the one winning this generation. Amen? Why don't we sing there's power in the blood? There's power in the blood. Power. There is power in the blood, folks. I'm just saying, if you want to attract youth, if you want to reach the generation that you've been responsible for and accountable for before him, we had better get with the game plan. Amen? 
I like the song Power in the Blood, by the way. Don't, don't think I'm demising. I'm just saying, if the average guy walks in that door and they're 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, they're going to spin around and walk out to someone who speaks my language. I can't relate to that. I just can't relate to it. I'll try, but I can't. And then we wonder why our churches don't grow. So I, I don't have to like rap. And as I stood with Pastor Tommy on that front row, I remember looking at him and thinking, man, man, I've got a lot to learn. I bet you hate this rap. I bet you hate it. Boom, boom, boom. I bet you hate it. But who cares, huh? I don't have to like it, do I? I don't have to like it. I don't have to like your hair. I don't have to like the way you dress. I don't have to like anything. I just need to give you space. Do you know, God is a God of diversity. And the devil is a devil of complete conformity in the wrong sense. That's where Hitler came from. That's where your cloning, by the way, is coming from. And one of the worst things that we can ever do is to try, to try and make, as a discipler, is to try and make everyone just like me. And when they're all like me, I've succeeded. Actually, when they're all like you, you have completely, abysmally failed. Because the church is diverse. Just take a look around at not just human creation, but all creation. But something inside my humanity thinks that I should try and make people like me. Something wants, something in me wants to conform them to my standards. And at some point in my Christian growth, I've got to die to that. At some point, that has got to go out and diversity, divergence, and really, you know, just accepting cultures, accepting the generations for what they are and who they are, that needs to come into me. That's what Jesus was famous for. That's why the sinners flocked to him. To the Jews, I will become a Jew. To the Greeks, I will become a Greek. To the youth, I will be a youth. To the elderly, I will be as the elderly. So that by some hope, by some way, I'll win some. That's the attitude we need in our churches. What, what do I do as a discipler? I need to be a friend of sinners. And I need to be very honest with myself. If people are running away from me, is it because there's condemnation coming out of me instead of hope and love? Is that what it is? Well, God forgive me and God change me. Am I actually condemning people when I'm speaking to them, when I'm preaching? Am I condemning? Watch it, Michael. Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. He came to save. That's got to be my heart. Have I got too much truth and not enough grace? Or am I all grace? Where am I? Better push that balance. That's hard. But it's crucial. And that last point for me is, is the heart of the discipler. Someone who seeks God for, the, for his plan. Look at John chapter 21. John chapter 21 and verse 20. I love this scripture. It's wonderful. John chapter 21 and verse 20. Peter turned and <coughs> excuse me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back <coughs> against Jesus at the supper and had said, "Lord, who is going to betray you?" When Peter saw him, he asked, look at the question. "Lord, what about him? <laughs> it's a great scripture. Listen, look at me a moment. 
we had a church uh, in, in Ireland. Sorry for referencing that so much. It's, it's where most of my past experience came from. We had a church in Ireland that was struggling with diversity. A church that was struggling to incorporate multiculturalism. And one day God showed me that scripture. And I started to minister into it on the first Sunday about growing up, not growing old, <laughs> growing up and being able not to be so fussed. Lord, what's going to happen to him? Like Peter just asked. Lord, what about the other people? And I'll explain what Peter was doing. I, I did that the first week. John chapter 21, John chapter 21, verse 20, on the first week. I went home, and do you know what? God said to me, do it again the following week. So I was back in again with the same sort of message the next week. Do you know what happened then? <laughs> you go home, God, do it again! Oh no, I don't want to back the same message in three weeks. I back in and do it again. People start to get fed up. John, I'm John 21. I'm already there. The fourth week comes. John chapter 21. Fifth week. John, and I, I, I'm really hurting. And my senior pastor there, Peter, he was annoyed. He's sitting there. I could, I could feel the anger in him. And he's sitting there thinking, either you move on or I'll move you on. Because we're not coming back to this scripture. What's it got to do with him? Lord, what about him? Get over it, whatever you're on about. You know, hobby horse. I finished that fifth session. Listen to this. I finished that fifth session, and we were all going to a conference. The kickoff was that Sunday night. We drove down to Carrigeedon Bible College, and Jeff Lucas, who many of you will know, was the speaker at that conference. He stood up, and he said, Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 21. And he focused on that. Now, someone who was proud would have said, I told you so. That's exactly what I did. And I told you, see? God had something that he wanted them to get. And no matter how long it takes, I'm going to keep on telling you. Look at what's happening here. Jesus is there, Peter's here, and John's there. And Peter turns in John 21, he says, Peter, you're going to be crucified when you're older. You're going to stretch out your arms. You're going to die on a cross, Peter. And Peter's following along there. Am I? And behind him is John. He's probably eating an apple, you know, enjoying the sun. John's a bit like that, right? <laughs> enjoying the love of God. And I'm going to be crucified. Lord, what about him? What about him? Is he going to be like me? Am I the one that has to suffer and not him? Everybody should be like me. If I'm going to be crucified, they've all got to be crucified. And do you see the point here? There's something in Peter, and I recognize it in me too. That wants a conformity that's not from God. And Jesus turns to him and he says this, mind your own business, basically. You follow me, he says to Peter. If I want him to stay alive till I return, that's none of your business, but you follow me. Right? He's turning him into a disciple. That's what he's doing. I'm just saying, folks, today's topic, or title if you like, is essential perspectives for being a good discipler. It's one who's of the same spirit as Christ was off. It is very easy to take this book and operate in the wrong spirit. Very easy. And he criticized disciples there for acting like Old Testament prophets. You do not know the spirit you are off. You do not even know this new covenant grace that I'm offering. And of course they did in due course. So we need to get that spirit. Be a friend of sinners. Be full of grace and truth. Don't condemn if it's in our spirit. And for heaven's sake... Let people be built in the way that Jesus wants. Do you know, Pui, 
as you take on the discipleship of the church, please don't ever try to make us Malaysian. Praise the Lord. Right? Chris, don't try to make me a Singaporean. Stefan, don't try to make me a German. Because this is not Germany. This is not Singapore. It's not Nigeria. It's not actually Scotland. This is not Glasgow. This is the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, none of those rules apply. And I have no right to superimpose on you any of my little ways or traits, but rather listen to God and let you blossom in the freedom and function that he's made you to be. Amen? Just if you're taking notes, the last point, and I won't cover it in detail this morning, but a modern-day disciple, and I mean modern-day because times have changed, needs to understand that your disciple will only be changed by who you are. Not by what you say. Not even so much by what you do. You could do all sorts of things. It's who you are that changes people. And changing as a person is the most costly thing you're ever going to do. And I pray that God equips us for next year when we put our shoulder to the harness and we take this thing to heart. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask you to indeed equip us for every good work. If any of these ways be found in us, Lord, change them. God, move upon us and, and, and grow us to be the best disciples that we could possibly, possibly be. I pray that you would make us friends of sinners. For our family, we lift them to you. Whoever they are, wherever they are, that when they're around us, God, they'll feel faith, hope, and love. If there's condemnation in us, Jesus, forgive us. We want to be of the right spirit, the spirit of God. Lord, if there's too much truth, as it were, if we're imbalanced in grace and truth, forgive us for that also. And above all, let the Lord build the house. We lift our children, lift our wives, we lift our, our, our cell members, our disciples, and we ask you to give us the plan. Give us the architect. You're the architect, we're the builder. And give us your plans. And may we build them and obey them. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, folks.